The relentless bullying at school has reached breaking point for this once happy eighth grader. His only escape is playing video games for hours and hours on end. In this virtual community, he has everything he needs and wants. He's got friends, respect, a sense of purpose, and a place to hide from his brutal existence. Life is perfect in the world of Warcraft. But Kamadea's addiction is out of control. He wants to stop, but he's spiraling. There's only one way out. One night, he shuts off his computer, takes out a piece of paper, and writes a suicide note to his parents. Before we get started, are you ready to take control over gaming? In phase one of our family program, we provide immediate strategies to stop the spiral and break through denial. In phase two, you make progress in all areas of your life, including increased motivation, productivity, and social skills. For information on our coaching programs, you can go to gamequitters.com and click book a call in the top right corner or email me directly, cam at gamequitters.com. People think gamers are lazy and how many people do you know that can do something for 16 hours straight without even thinking about it? <laughs> yeah. Gamers are actually, they work extremely hard. It's just into a thing for the majority of them that really has no ROI in the real world. 31 years old and game free for 10 years. Camadeer is a recovering video game addict and now a leading expert and pioneer in the field of video game addiction. Growing up in Canada, Cam seemed normal. He went to school, played hockey, went home, and then played video games. But that all changed in the eighth grade when he began to get picked on. For the next 10 years, he disappeared to the world of video gaming. Nothing else mattered except the world of Warcraft. In 2018, the World Health Organization declared video game addiction as a mental health disorder. There are 2.2 billion gamers worldwide, and 3% of them struggle with addiction challenges. This means there could be tens of millions of addicted gamers globally. At 21, Cam beat the odds and quit gaming once and for all. He then founded Games Quitters, which is now the largest support community for people who want to break free from this terrible addiction. Cam joined me in the Bucket Studio partway through a national tour to tell me about how he turned his life around and now the lives of so many others who suffered just like he did. Uh, we're gonna talk gaming. We're gonna talk about gaming addiction. We are in uh, Los Angeles. I am with Cam, who knows a lot about this subject. Great to have you here. You've, uh, you've just, you said you've just flown in from- Toronto. Toronto. Is that how you said in Canada? The Toronto, yeah. Toronto. I believe there's, you can tell the difference if someone's from Canada or not, because they'll say Toronto versus Toronto. Toronto. Yeah. Okay. I, I thought we'd just start with this, uh, with this quote. You've said that gaming addiction is a huge problem and that there is a tsunami of gaming addiction coming that as a society we are not prepared for. Uh, at least 10, between somewhere between 10 and 50 million video game addicts are in the world right now. Many of them struggling in silence and you think that that is just going to continue to increase. That is a little scary. I think it can be scary, but I also think that it's just an example of the amount of people who play video games now. Yeah. Almost all teenagers play, over 83% of teenage girls play video games regularly. And if you look at you know, 2.4, 2.6 billion gamers worldwide, if even one to three to 4% of those are addicted, which is what World Health Organization is saying, that's a large amount of people. So what is the definition of addiction when it comes to gaming? Because we know addiction when it comes to drugs or smoking or, you know, it's that it seems to be an easier way to define addiction. But how do you define addiction in gaming? 
The key distinction between a passion for gaming and an, an addiction would be continuing to game despite the occurrence of negative impact. So the World Health Organization would classify what they call gaming disorder as gaming taking precedence over other activities, gaming no longer being a, in a sense of control, and continuing to game despite you know, negative impact. You're losing your job, you're calling in sick to work to game, you're not going to school anymore, you're isolated from friends and family, yet you continue to game despite that. So in my own experience, I was actually pretending to have jobs and deceiving my family when really I was at home gaming. Yeah, I found it so sad that your parents did not know that you were returning home to then go right back to your video games. It, it felt so sad that they didn't even know where you were. For me, it was like living a second life. And I think that in that sense, on one hand, I was kind of going through the motions of, you know, my dad would drop me off at McDonald's across the street from a restaurant where he thought I was working. Right. And I had him do that because I knew that he would sit outside this restaurant waiting for me to go inside. And if I wasn't actually working there, which I wasn't, that would be an awkward experience of me walking into a restaurant where I don't belong. Right. And so he dropped me off at McDonald's. I'd eat, he'd leave. And then I'd walk across the street, catch the bus back home, sneak in through my window and go back to sleep. And on one hand, I felt great about it because I was being successful at I deceiving see. them. But on the other hand, as much as gaming was allowing me to escape dealing with my problems, as soon as I turn the game off and I look around and my life is in the same place, that didn't feel so good. And eventually that was eating away at me to a point where you know I had to make a change. And the fact that you weren't earning an income when he thought you were earning an income, how long did this facade go on for? I knew that the benchmark would be about three weeks before they would be like, yo, where's the paycheck? Right. And so three weeks was kind of enough time where my paycheck wouldn't be a lot, where it was noticeable, but it was enough that I'd have a little bit of money to be able to get by for a couple of weeks. And so at the three week mark is when I would always quit or say I quit or pretend I got fired or really make up any excuse I could because my entire strategy was how do I confuse them? How do I wear them down? How do I get them to a point where they're just like, we don't want to deal with this anymore? Like figure your life out. Cause I knew my parents weren't going to be the type that would literally kick me out of the house. And I think on the internet or when it's not your kid, that's an easy suggestion to make. Right. But when you're emotionally involved, you're far more likely to try to find any other means to help them turn that situation around. And I also do think that it's important to note that when we're dealing with mental health, the strategy that's going to be successful isn't always just kick them out and have them be homeless on the street. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have an older sister, younger brother. D were they aware of what was going on? Did they have to keep a secret? They weren't aware of it. My brother liked to game a lot. Right. When he went to university, you know, harder classwork, got a girlfriend. That's when he just didn't have time for gaming anymore. Whereas I was more the type that I wouldn't have a girlfriend. I wouldn't go to school. I would get rid of any other responsibilities in order to play more. And how were you going at school? Was it affecting everything in your life? Were you, was, was it affecting your schoolwork? Absolutely. And I was a very like 51% student. So the bare minimum effort I could put in to just pass, that was where I was at. Even though, you know, I had far more potential than that. But in the 12th grade, when I went to school, I dropped out two times. But before I dropped out the second time, in order to play hockey, I had to go to school. That was the agreement. And that worked until hockey was over midway through the school year. And then I dropped out again. But earlier that year, I had dropped as many classes as possible, things like gym, any sort of option classes, in order to maximize the amount of time I could game. And so during the school day, I actually 
only had one or two classes a day and then all the other during the, the day I could actually just be at home gaming. So you would go to school, do whatever you had to do, the least amount of, of effort possible, then whip home and start playing games again. Exactly. So and you're not successful at school, but, but in this other life, this, this gaming life, you were extremely successful. Absolutely. And, and it was all, if I understand it correctly, it was all spurred on by feeling alienated and, and being bullied at school when you were, what, in the eighth grade or something, right? Right. Is, is that, was that the turning point for you? Is that where you sort of found this comfort in gaming? That was the turning point. Yeah. And it was when gaming went from kind of being this supplement in my life. You know, I was a high level hockey player, very successful hockey player. And, you know, I'd go to school and then I'd come home and play video games. During the summers, it did become a problem because I no longer had school. I no longer had hockey and I would game all day long, almost like binge during the summer. But then school and hockey came back and then I had to moderate more. But when I began to experience a lot of the bullying, it definitely became more of that escape and that contrast between in the real world, I had no control. I didn't really have a lot of friends. I wasn't very successful online. I was, and that's when it really had a grip on me. And that's when it became more of a problem. Yeah. Th this quote, you say, uh, games give you a sense of purpose. They give you a mission, a goal to work towards and they're specifically designed that way. The designers are thinking about that as they're making them, so that there's this, um, what you say is a, an invisible game design, and you always know what the next thing is that you need to do. You have this sense of purpose, you can uh, beat out your boss, you can get this weapon, you can achieve a certain level, and, and that purpose is what keeps people coming back. They feel like they belong. I guess. Absolutely. And I think that it's important to note that game designers, I don't think are being malicious or most of them aren't being malicious in their intent to design games in they a way. They want to make them and engaging. They want to make them engaging. It's similar to social media and Facebook and these social media companies where yeah. their idea is we need to engage people. So or a movie. All, it's no different right. than making good entertainment. You want to pull people in. Exactly. But the incentives and the interests are in the wrong area because if Facebook's interest is getting you to spend as much time on the platform as possible so that they earn as much ad revenue as possible, then they have to find ways to make the platform so engaging that you spend more time on it. And those sorts of design features can be a problem for some people. And I think for games in a similar way, one of the big distinctions that happened in gaming was when mobile gaming came out and yeah. games went from being you know, generally a one-time purchase where you bought the game for $50. Yeah, you had an you, Atari at home and you had to have, plug it into a TV. You had to be physically in a location. Right, and, and then it changed to being more of a free-to-play model with things like in-app purchases and microtransactions involved, which meant that the game now, their function, instead of just being a fun game that they wanted you to buy one time, became a way where they need to get you to make more and more purchases in the game. And that changed the incentive to spending more money in games and spending more time on games. And I think that's where we've seen some features that have come out that can be problematic for people. So what are we talking about in terms of expense? Like if you're addicted to games, how expensive a habit is it? That's a huge range. Yeah. Overall, the amount of time that you spend playing games and the amount of money you spend in games isn't a general good indicator of whether or not there's harm being involved. Right. But we know from a lot of research from a researcher named David Zendel that the more money the people spend in games, the more likely they are to have a problem gambling problem. And I do think that there's a lot of interesting things happening around 
say loot boxes, which are a feature in games now that are that? kind of like a mystery box ah. where you're able to spend a certain amount of money, usually a small amount I see. for the chance to win different items. And those items can be usually cosmetic items, but they can be very basic or they can be very legendary, very epic, very rare. And it's the chance to win those items. That's where a lot of more problem gambling concerns come into, into the game. One of the things you hear people, defenders of video games, I guess you could say, they say, well, look at the community that where this community comes together, these huge events where people are watching the best of the best play in stadiums where there's thousands of people and they're all cheering for their favorite players. A lot of people argue, well, look, look at that community. That's, you're not isolated. This is not an addiction. This is, this is being part of a community. It's How a, do you distinguish between that, what they're saying and what you know and have lived? It's an interesting conversation because over the last five years, there has been a, a shift from that conversation of those aren't your real friends to gaming being a very social activity. Mm. It is a sense of community. It is a culture that you belong to. And in the real world, if society doesn't understand that, it creates an us versus them mentality where gamers are surrounded by people excuse me, who understand them and who get them and who understand their passion and their friends and family and society at large doesn't understand them. Gaming is a sense of community. It is a culture. And if that means that you're further isolated from real world relationships, you're isolated in a bedroom, you're not talking ah, to your right. family, you're not going to school anymore. You're only talking to friends online. I think there are some concerns there. And one of them is just whether or not it's really developing empathy. There are some games that can help you develop empathy, but I think if you've ever been on a website like Twitter or had a YouTube channel or really interacted online at all, even in gaming, it can be fairly toxic. Yeah. And that is because- There's bullying that takes place there. I mean, the bullying you are running away from in a way, you, you could be walking right into a world where you're facing more bullying there. One of the advantages was that I had control over that. So I, I could see. go to a different game, go to a different website, go to a different server. I could block people. You had power. I, I had power. I had control. At school, I couldn't help yeah. kids chasing me around at school trying to put me in a garbage can. Right. I couldn't help that. I had to be there. Mm. And so I do think that that sense of control online makes people, especially if they struggle with social anxiety, a lot more comfortable because they, they have some distance and some space between them and maybe people who are bullying them or, or who aren't nice to them. So the games that that you gravitated towards were, were what games? More competitive type games, things like StarCraft, Counter-Strike, World of Warcraft, games where I really got to see a sense of progress. I got to be competitive against other people and games that you know really were the, the defining games of, of my generation in the sense of competition. So it, true escapism for you. You could be the person that you couldn't be in real life. World of Warcraft was like that for me. I had a different sense of identity and being able to see a sense of achievement in that character really acted as a contrast to the struggles I was having in the real world. But the thing I loved about World of Warcraft was that I could play it for 16 hours a day and not even think about it. There was always something else to do. I was really living a virtual life in that sense. And the game never has a pause. It never has an end. It just continues on. It's another world. And that to me was very appealing at the time that I was playing it. 
So do you feel, do you feel that kids who are in that world and who are connecting with somebody, maybe lives in Singapore, do you feel that they're losing some of the face-to-face skills that come from being forced to have to interact with people? Because there is a layer between you and this person on the other side of the, wor- the world? Absolutely. And I think it would be difficult to argue otherwise. It's right. at a point where it's not. Because you that, seem so uh, amicable. You're, you're, you're a great talker. You're articulate. I don't feel like there's any, anything about you, any awkwardness about you. You seem totally open. So you would think that if you were escaping to that world, maybe you would lose some of those skills, but not in your case. I definitely have had a lot of practice. Okay. I would say if you tried to bring me to a party and there were a bunch of people, if there were 20 people here right now, yes. you know, I, I do struggle with social okay. anxiety quite a bit. I believe, you know, I am able to, to be personable and, and social. There are a lot of people though, who would struggle with going for a job interview, being able to make eye contact, being able to socialize in a way that you need to in the real world. Yeah. And I think that that doesn't mean they're not social online. It doesn't mean that they're not developing real, authentic, meaningful relationships online, but do those skills translate to the real world? And I think that we're seeing currently an experience where a lot of people are escaping in the gaming, but they're not even talking to their family. They're not spending dinner together. And you know, it's not just gaming. We could just go on any public transportation and look at people just staring at their phones. And I think that's another example of it. Think of you at your worst point. What would somebody have said to you to get you out, to pull you out? I'm not sure if there was anything someone could have said. I can just share a bit about what did help me. Yeah. The first thing was that when I got to a point where I needed help, I had good relationships with my parents where I felt willing to go to my dad and say, I'm not doing so good. I need to see a counselor. Can you help me do that? Tell tell us about that, that moment, because it must have taken a tremendous amount of courage because you're essentially saying to your father, dad, I feel vulnerable. I, I need help. It's hard sometimes to reach out to admit that you need help. I had reached rock bottom. That night I had spent dinner alone in my room writing a suicide note to 12 people in my life who meant something to me, oh like my, my dad. And I'm very fortunate that while writing that note, I got a text from a friend named Ainsley who said, Hey, Cam, do you want to go see the movie Superbad? A couple of us are going to go see it. And I said, yeah, sure. That sounds great. We While went you were writing these, was she on that list of 12 people? She may have been. Right. She likely was. Yes. She was one of my closest friends at the time. She invited me to go see the movie and we went. And I went from kind of writing this note over dinner. I can still remember the Swiss chard soup my mom made that <laughs> night for dinner. Went from that to smiling and laughing and having a great time with a couple of friends at a movie theater. I believe Superbad saved my life. You know, as funny as that is, right? Like, yeah, it's kind of funny, but like laughing during that movie gave me a shift in my state where it allowed me to see a perspective of my life at that time because I was no longer so sad and so depressed. I was like laughing that it's like I was able to see my life. It woke you up maybe? It made you you realize, hey, maybe I do want to live and maybe I'm I'm not ready to leave. (laughs) Yeah. The way I describe it is like it allowed me to like zoom out and to see my life. And I realized that I was actually a danger to myself. Like I could no longer prioritize my own health and well-being. I could no longer have my own back. I could no longer actually believe 
that I was going to be able to keep myself safe. And so I went home that night and asked my father to help me find a counselor. And he said, yes, wow. this counselor really, this counselor really helped me turn things around. What was the counselor saying to you that resonated? What, how, how did they do that? What were the things that they said? The biggest thing he did was he held me accountable. We made an agreement that was, I needed to either get and keep a job or I was going on antidepressants. And for me, intuitively, antidepressants have always just not felt like something I need. Not that I'm against them. They've just felt like, I feel like I would struggle to get off of them. Right. And so I agreed to getting a job. So I applied for a job at Mex, the retail store, got the interview, went for the interview, got the job, never showed up on the first day. Oh. Came back to the next counseling session and he said, did you get a job? I said, yes. He said, did you go? I said, no. And he said, okay, you have like three more days to get a job or you're going on antidepressants. Could he have forced you to take them? No, Not but really, it, but it was sort of, it was like a gentleman's agreement. Right. Okay. I, if he said that I would have done it. Right. So I went, I applied at H and M, the retail store, got the job. And then I missed 21 out of my first 27 shifts. And wow. that's a part of the story for me that is kind of embarrassing, but also it, it's, it's a illustration of where I was at at the time. It's not that I didn't want to go to work. It's that every day I would hop in the shower, get ready for work. And then I'd start having a panic attack to the point where you I had anxiety, you literally were... be vomiting in the shower. And at that because point, because of the idea of having to, con to, to be around people and to be, Resp people relying on you was that what I'm it not was? sure exactly what it was yeah you know I just went through some very traumatic stuff of writing a suicide note thinking I was gonna yeah. do it that night a lot of anxiety of having to go from living in the virtual world to living in the real world again having to take responsibility having to actually go to work you know kind of no longer having my full day just to myself all those things I think played some role I'm forever grateful that the manager I had didn't fire me. And the only reason he didn't, I think was divine intervention because every day he would, I would actually go into work and he'd say, dude, like, what the heck? You didn't come into work again. And I would just always say, I'm going through a lot. Please don't fire me. Wow. And when I get through this, I'll be great. And like, please stick by me basically. And for whatever reason he did. This guy's a hero. I owe him a lot for just sticking by me yeah. at times that were tough. Um, and I sent him a TEDx talk I had just done. And just so he knows, like he is making a difference, even if it's not always received in the moment, it does stick with you. And I share these stories because the question of like, how do you help someone who doesn't want help is the million dollar question. Mm. But I do think it's important to remember that these small acts of kindness that you may not even realize are happening are happening and they are having an impact on people and they could potentially even save someone's life. When you think about the little things that were done, that text that you got that suddenly turned and suddenly super bad, you know, helped to turn a switch and, and then this gentleman at the job taking the time to be patient with you. You know, they say, there's a book, it says it takes 22 days to change a habit. And it's interesting that you didn't turn up for 21 days. And I guess on the 22nd, you did. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you, you proved that law. 
right? That's funny. Yeah, that's yeah. the truth. Yeah, so. I've, I've never thought about it like that, but it was, uh, it's a time of my life I look back on and it, it's, it seems like a foreign life to me now. It's yeah. so different, but I know it, it all has kind of led to where I am today. And well, you mentioned the, the, the TED talk, which I would love to talk about in a bit, but um, I'm interested during this whole time when you were going through this, whether you had to hide the games away or how did you, did you just go cold turkey and like, I'm not touching the games? How did you cope with that? When I decided to quit, I made a decision and it's this decision I think that really turned things around for me. I made a commitment that I was gonna pursue my potential. I was so curious what would happen if I went from spending 16 hours a day and put it into gaming and put it into other goals and dreams I had. Like, what could I achieve? Did you write a list? I didn't write a list. I actually only had one goal at the time I knew that I wanted to do, which was to improve my social skills. And so I basically went from, instead of gaming, I'm gonna go out and try and meet people and I'm gonna write down lessons I was learning and just really try to understand how to connect with people better. Did you, did, were you dating at all? Trying, yeah. failing, <laughs> failing to, but because trying. Because you were unpracticed, you hadn't sort of yeah, gone through like, the teenage years of practicing? Yeah, I think for me it was just trying to learn that better. And if I wasn't gonna end my life, mm -hmm. then I was gonna do the complete opposite, which was to truly try to live my life to the fullest. And I share that because I, I think that it's important to recognize, at least for myself, that it was a complete shift in why I was living. It was no longer a choice of, I'm just gonna continue to do what I've been doing. I'm gonna continue to live in a way where I'm just suffering all the time, or I'm really unhappy, or I'm making decisions that lead to that. I'm gonna do something completely different. Like what would it look like if I tried something new? And for anyone listening, I, I think sometimes that can be such a powerful decision to just try something new. Like literally veer off and take a 180 and... Try something completely different. Try yeah. a completely different diet. Yeah. Try a completely different set of habits. Try things that maybe you've been resistant to, but have never actually experienced. Try life without gaming for 90 days. Laird Hamilton says, uh, one of my favorite quotes from him is, uh, uh, do something new and different every day, you know, like w with regards to working out. But he also says it's for the mind, you know, practicing the mind to just be adaptable so that you, you don't get stuck in a addiction like that, that you're constantly testing yourself in different ways. Exactly, and, and as a surfer, he also has a huge benefit of experiencing that every time he surfs. Every time, because the water's never the same. Exactly, and yeah. it's one of my favorite things about surfing is yeah. it's always different. So and you find peace with that? Yeah, it's meditation for me. And that gets you away, because one of the things you identified going cold turkey was you really needed to distract yourself fully, right? And so you immerse yourself in the work fully yeah work and i started learning how to dj i started uh hiking a lot more hanging out with friends going on adventures traveling really getting myself out of my typical environment and for me what was important was identifying why i played games like what needs it was fulfilling for me and if you were to list those now with hindsight what would what were they temporary escape mm -hmm. social connection constant measurable growth and a sense of purpose or a sense of certainty which is 
ironic, really, when you think about the way we think of people who are addicted, we think that they lack all those things, but really they're just, they're putting it into a video game instead of applying it to real life. People think gamers are lazy, and how many people do you know that can do something for 16 hours straight without <laughs> even thinking about it? Yeah. Gamers are actually, they work extremely hard. It's just into a thing for the majority of them that really has no ROI in the real world. That's a really interesting way to think of it because yes, I think you think of someone who's hanging out at home playing a video game all day, you would think, oh, well, they're so lazy, they're not doing anything. But for them, no, I'm, I've got, I'm really, I look at you know, the levels that I've grown here, look at the skills that I have, look at the people that I'm interacting with. And they're studying too. They're watching other people play, they're reading about how to be better, they're reviewing their games they're trying very hard to improve. So if you can take all of that potential energy like you did and turn it and say, hey, I've got all of this, what, what's, what are some good things that I can do? Which I guess is sort of where you're at in your life now, right? You've made a, a decision to help others. Redirecting that energy, it's within you. If you align it with other goals and dreams or other values you have, what could you achieve? And for me, I was so genuinely curious, like what could I achieve if I did that, that I decided I might as well start today because I want to see just how far I could go. It's been about 10 years. You did have a relapse though, I right? did. You, you, you did one of the, you made one of the big mistakes that addicts make, which is just one more, just one more drink, just one more cigarette, just one more game. Is that kind of what happened? I had started to feel a bit depressed again. And this time, instead of escaping in the gaming, I thought I needed a change of scenery, mm. a fresh start. So I moved to Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island. And I moved in with a new roommate. His name was Ben. He was a professional poker player. Oh. During our very first conversation, Ben shared that he used to play StarCraft, and I did too. Mm. And he said he was going to go out and buy it, and we were going to play. And I can remember even right now looking at him in our living room saying like, no, I'm all right. Dude, this is not I, happening I right would now. rather not. Like, I'm happy now. Things are good. You know, I'd prefer not to play and I'll never forget it. He came home that night, put the game in front of me and said, come on, man, just one game. I said, okay, fine. Just one game. We played and he absolutely destroyed me. And so my ego took a hit and that night I committed to doing whatever it took to ensure he could never beat me again. And I went from not gaming for two years to gaming 16 hours a day, all day, every day for five months straight. Again? Yeah. Right overnight. Yeah. For five L Literally months? the next morning I woke up and I was right back in 100%. Oh, absolutely devastating. So did you share this relapse with your parents or did they know that this happened? No one really knew. Because your parents must have been so relieved that you'd got back on track and then you take this turn again. Yeah, I had stopped working. I, I mean, the best I did was I was showering and you know eating and that was about it. I barely left the house for five months. And it was during that time that I realized just how much of an impact gaming had on me. And I realized that I needed to quit again. Oh. But this time I really kind of took a step back to think about why am I so drawn to games? And, and, and again, it was those needs. Those needs. I w and you I just weren't getting them in your real life again. I, I think on one hand, it's true that you may not be getting them in real life or you may be fulfilling them ineffectively. For instance, you need to escape. Dealing with stress is a natural part of what we have to do. Yeah. But if you're not intentional in how you're doing that, 
then you could find yourself overstressed, overwhelmed, and just going to what your habit is, which for a lot of people, if their habit is gaming, then that's what they'll go to. For me, it was gaming is so effective at fulfilling all of those needs in one activity while also being hyper stimulating. So you're in flow state the entire time you're playing. There aren't really any other activities I know of that can do the same. What other activity will let you escape, let you socially connect, let you see a sense of progress and let you feel a sense of purpose and be hyper stimulating for 15 hours. And you where you can and where you can make up your own rules about when and where create and a sense, sense of identity like surfing doesn't give that to you. You can surf for about two or three hours before you're completely exhausted. You can do it with friends. You can see your progress. But I can tell you from surfing every day for three, four months, you'll feel progress, but it'll be very small. You'll still get thrown on your face a whole bunch. It's different with gaming. Gaming, you see a scoreboard, you see a rank change. And games are designed in a way to always show you your progress. Constantly rewarding you. Exactly. And real life just doesn't work like that. But as humans, we really love that sense of progress. And so when we can see it, it's very visual, it's very constant and intermittent. You know, that's where it can be very compelling. You get to a point where you think, okay, I've got to quit again you know the pain that you went through the first time, but you have the wherewithal to, to Google how to quit video games, how to quit <laughs> playing video games. <laughs> so what happens when you Google that? What, what comes up? I read an article, I think it was on WikiHow, that said to quit playing video games, you just need to spend more time with your friends when, of course, all my friends were gamers or you need to study more when the whole reason I was gaming was to avoid studying. I think even one of the- Sounds like a very helpful article. <laughs> yeah. One of the suggestions- <laughs> it, really, it really resonated with you. One of the suggestions was actually just to drink more water because <laughs> really? I, as if that's gonna help How's you that quit going? gaming. Um, and Maybe because they figure you have to pee more so you have to yeah. leave the video game and there's a chance you might not go back. Another suggestion was to give the games to your younger cousin because you know, if you're- Oh, having, get them. Yeah, get, get them, them in the problem it. instead. Yeah, yeah. So you, you know, become like a dealer. Right. Yeah. And for me, reading this article just made me so mad. This person obviously does not understand what someone like was given are... an assignment to write a good search engine optimized article on right. how to quit playing video games. And that's what they came up with. And they're all suggestions that sound really good. Oh, they like, sound oh, amazing. Yeah, just hang out with more friends. But they don't <coughs> actually understand anyone who's actually struggling with the issue. And for anyone who's actually in that issue, they're going to read that article and be like, this person doesn't get me. And they're going to turn that article off and go back and play games. So these things that they were suggesting, probably what a lot of parents instinctively would say because they're just trying to help, but they don't know any better, right? They don't know the right things to say. Right. And a big one that parents say is you're addicted to gaming. Stop. When whether or not you're right. Well, that's helpful. Captain obvious. Right. (laughs) Like whether or not you're right doesn't matter as much as are you effective. and. In that scenario, actually talking more about the behavior you're seeing, hey, you didn't go to school, hey, your grades are this, hey, you skipped work, hey, you're not working, you're 24 years old, you're still living at home. That's a very different kind of conversation than whether or not someone is addicted to gaming. What is addiction even? That becomes a big point of debate. And so I think focusing on the behavior, not so much on the games, is important for parents, just for communication. And really finding, like gaming is, fulfilling a lot of needs for them 
it is solving a problem for them. Right. So what's happening underneath and how do we be able to maybe work on that a bit? You gotta rebuild the, the base, right? It's like you said, it's not about being right in this case, it's about being effective. What's an effective way of creating change? Exactly. <laughs> if they quit gaming, they're gonna lose all their friends. Yeah. Like Taking their sense so of much. confidence, their sense of self-esteem, their sense of identity, the sense of prestige they have, their friends, like the way they deal with stress, you know, it, it's gonna be a lot for someone if they remove it. Yeah. And so it's not that you shouldn't remove it or that they don't need to quit, but identifying why it's happening will help you be able to set up a plan to be able to move forward. And you, you outlaid uh, four key points, which is one, temporary escape, two, social connection, three, constant measurable growth for challenge and sense of purpose. You've discussed all of those, but that at its core is, is what draws people, young people to play. Yes. And when, when you understand that, is that then way more helpful because you're able to look at that and go, okay, how can I find those things out there instead of on this screen? I would just encourage people to try it as an experiment. Try 90 days of no gaming. See what happens with your life. For most people who are gaming, they've started from two, three, four, five years old. Gaming is what they know. They don't actually know what their life is like without gaming. Try it for 90 days, see how it impacts your life. And at the end of 90 days, make a decision about whether or not you wanna go back to it, try moderation, go back and play again, or quit forever. So what could your parents have done? Because I was a young parent and I've learned a lot. <laughs> it's hard to get it right. What could your parents have done in hindsight that would have stopped the progression to addiction? What were some parameters or some boundaries that they could have set? Stronger boundaries and more consistent boundaries. I was the type that I'm difficult to deal with because if you try and set a boundary on me, like I'm coming back with vengeance. My parents grounded me when I was 12 years old, so I grounded them back. That's an example of How it. How do you ground your parents I put a back? password on the computer so no one got to use it until no I way. was ungrounded. And then when that didn't work, I took all the power cords from all the TVs and the computers and hid them until I was ungrounded. Wow, right? you really are. You like it, it, I was not taking it down lightly. It was, if you're coming at me, I'm coming back. Now, wow. I do think that at the end of the day, my parents did the best they could. They tried everything. They did remove it at one point. They gave it back. I think that parents need to set very firm boundaries. Some general guidelines you want to kind of work with. Ideally, not gaming every day if they're under 18 years old. Have every day that they don't play, earn a game day. Uh, some families in Australia that we work with, no gaming Monday to Thursday, ah. and then some gaming on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. But then doesn't that affect the kid's ability to, be get, to get good? So then there's that frustration that they're not practicing, and then just like you got your ass whooped by your friend Ben, that then they get whooped on the weekend, you know? And then, oh, I better practice Monday to Friday. And part of that comes down to like, what's the goal? Yeah. What's the direction? And why are you playing? Why, Again, are, you why playing? are you playing? Like if you're playing to become the next great esports star. Yeah. Okay. That's, you know, a different situation. Explain that by the way, just for people, cause I've seen it, but people who have never heard of what esports are and just how big they are for people to understand the scale of this. Cause until you see it, 
it, it, it's mind-blowing. Esports is organized professional gaming, but it doesn't just happen on the professional level. It now happens at high school and college. There's over 600 universities in the U.S. that have either a varsity team, a scholarship, or some sort of a club for esports. There's 17,000 high schools in the U.S. that have a high school esports league. And that's not just here in the U.S., that's also in Australia. They have high school and college scholarships as well. Esports is almost a billion dollar industry currently, and it's growing rapidly. The key stat that people need to know is that gamers spend just as much time gaming as they do watching other people play games. That's on websites like YouTube and Twitch. Wow. So gaming itself as an industry, as a professional industry, is growing rapidly. And in traditional sports, we have football, basketball, soccer, hockey. There's only a couple of them. With esports, every new game has an opportunity to be its own esport. I see. They would have high school, college, and professional level infrastructure. So, so it's kind of like scale the Olympics where you've got all these different events they, and, and they keep adding new ones, right? And with viewership so high, that brings in a lot of sponsorship money and it's a massive industry. It's growing rapidly. So is this, is this dramatically hurting or is it helping? Because it's a community and because it's, there's a lot of people watching, not actually playing, is, as far as the work that you're doing to try to help people who are getting addicted, are we gonna see more addicts as a result of this or is this a good thing? It's a mix of both. I think when you see a teenager win $3 million like he did during the Fortnite World Cup, that can inspire a lot of other kids to see the potential that they could also win millions of dollars playing video games. Mm. And they could use that to justify excessive play because that player ended up having to play about eight hours a day average to be able to win. He was 16 years old. Mm. Now, the Fortnite World Cup had 40 million competitors. The average age How many, was sorry? 40 million. Four zero million. Four zero million. The average age was 13 years old. A hundred of them won at least $50,000 or more and one won $3 million. So the chance to win money in a game like Fortnite was very low, actually. It might actually be harder than getting in the NBA. Oh, it's significantly harder. (laughs) It's significantly harder. Think about the type of competition. If you're not seven feet tall, it's hard to make the NBA. Right. As a gamer, you just have to be at home on your couch. Yeah. And it's much more accessible for people. Right. So the competition's a lot more fierce. And, you know, as we go forward, there will be more opportunities. And and I do think it's important to state that (coughs) I'm certainly not against gaming i'm certainly not against esports i do think it's important to have the right perspective on it yeah you you published uh, a a blog i guess it was right was called how to quit playing video games forever and yeah. um different from the the story that you googled and and then it went viral why did yours resonate i was speaking from experience i said very clearly in the article i'm a real gamer hardcore gamer here's my entire gaming history And here's what I learned. I wrote it more as a rant, as a response to the articles I had searched for before. And I think that it was polarizing because I was very focused on, look, I'm not against gaming, but gaming was impacting my life in a negative way. And I had to quit. And in order to quit, I tried to find help. The help I found wasn't helpful. And so through my own experience, here's what I have found works. And I think it just resonated with people who felt similar. People of all ages re- re- were reaching out to you and saying, 
I get, I get you. I yeah. understand what you're saying. Thousands of them from all over the world. We've heard from people in 95 different countries and countries that you wouldn't even believe like Zimbabwe and Iran and Iraq countries that you wouldn't really think would have gaming problems, but certainly do. And I wonder how they found you. Do you think they also went to Google and said how to quit video games and then suddenly your article came up and they saw you as legit? That's usually the way. The TED Talk also is yeah, a way. Yeah, so tell us about the TED Talk. You had a, how did, did, did the TED Talk people see the article and then say, hey, we want you to share these thoughts? That's basically how it happened. I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and basically a friend posted on Facebook saying, hey, TEDx Boulder is taking applications you know, you can apply here. And I saw it and was like, I'm going to do it. Perfect. And I applied and legitimately thought there were maybe 12 people who would have applied for such a thing. Came to learn there were over 400 applications, 50 people chosen for an interview. I was one of them. During the interview, Andrew Hyde, who's the organizer there, great guy. He told me basically like I had got it and I was overjoyed, said that he would email me the next day and next day, no email came next day no email again and on sunday i flew to uh, portland to visit some family and landed in the airport and there was the email you're speaking at tedx boulder and i remember walking through that airport being like i'm the you, man you don't even know yeah. who i am right now <laughs> it was pretty funny looking uh, back but it was you. a cool moment but i never spoken on stage before and tedx boulder is 2300 people in a sold out auditorium it's it's is it in an auditorium on yeah. the campus yeah 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 and it was very intense but my parents were in the second row and they must have been super proud of you it was it was a moment where i i finally just got to like share that experience in that sort of way and do you think they heard a lot of things they didn't they hadn't even though you'd come clean with them the night before ah i came clean the night before on pretending to have jobs they didn't know that oh all of that they never knew they never up knew until then yeah, and I did a second TEDx talk the year after on being bullied. And for the first time during that talk, my parents heard the stories of me oh being bullied. Oh my God, as they a parent, no that's gotta be heartbreaking yeah. to hear. Yeah, it was tough, but I know looking back, they're proud. And really for me doing the TEDx talk was doing something that I would be proud of myself for and something I could never take away because I always struggled with low self-esteem and really feeling proud of who I am. And I went on this mission to really try to, to change that. And I think a lot of people who struggle with gaming feel similar where they f struggle in the real world. They have low self-esteem and online they get that. And what I have found helped me improve my self-esteem in the real world was to do things that I was proud of. And so the TEDx talk was, I was very nervous being backstage, hearing the rumbling of the crowd clapping and the walls people. shaking. It's a big audience. What was the biggest audience before the 2300 people? I'd never spoken on stage before. Ever? Ever. I actually blanked out twice on stage. Blanked out from nerves? I completely forgot what I was supposed to say. Probably from nerves. I was really embarrassed to be honest at the end of the, at the end of it, just feeling like but I- But just think of the achievement though, yeah. now in hindsight, you're right. Well, and, and you know, I was sitting in the crowd kind of like trying to hide from everyone being embarrassed. And my definition of success for the talk was to have no regrets, mm -hmm. to really just try to do my best because I could control that. I couldn't control how many views it got or how I did. I could just control like whether or not I prepared to succeed. Mm. And I remember sitting in the crowd, looking at the stage, just thinking like, dude, you just did a TEDx talk. Like mm. that's such a big achievement for yourself. And you tried your best. 
and just be proud of that. And imagine, I was so grateful. Imagine in that moment before you headed off to see Superbad when you were really at your worst and someone slipped yeah. you a note and said, oh, by the way, you're going to go see Superbad. That's going to help. But one day you'll be doing a, a TED talk. Yeah. You'd be like, you're crazy. Exactly. <laughs> and so now how do you describe yourself? What's your job? What do you do? Which, what's your purpose now in life? What are you addicted to now? <laughs> it, it's, I describe my, my life now as surreal. It's different than what most people do, but I mean, I travel around the world full time. I spend two weeks out of the month traveling and speaking and two weeks out of the month, usually in Thailand with my girlfriend and speak all over the world about the subject video game addictions, half the gigs are to kind of parents and students and half the gigs are to mental health professionals, training them on how to identify this issue, how to work with it. And then when I'm not speaking, I'm working on the website, which is gamequarters.com, which is a peer support community for people who struggle with this issue, sharing resources, YouTube videos, interacting with the community, just trying to help them in any way that we can. We have about 40,000 journal entries published on the, on the forum where- Sounds you know, like you need a book. Yeah, I'm working on that. You're working on a book? Yeah. What are you going to call it? Game Over. Game Over. Ah, yeah. that's a good name. And there is a documentary on, on YouTube called yeah. Game Over. Yeah. On my story. But Oh, that's fantastic. So your TED Talk, is it available somewhere where people want to go see it? Yeah, if you search TED Talk Camadere yep. into YouTube, you'll find them. And where do you, I mean, you're just a young guy. What are you, you're 31? Yeah. So you got... Gosh, it's so much, so much ahead of you. What, what do you want to be doing in the future? You want to keep doing this? You want to have it evolve into something else? Or I want to surf more. Okay, that's probably the. I moved to Thailand recently with my girlfriend, and and not surfing has been kind of the one thing I've looked at over the last year. Is I wish I was doing that more. Yeah, and so just trying to, so to surf balance. more. Yeah. Um, surfing for me is so good because it it's a complete break. I can't think of anything else when I'm surfing. I'm fully present and that's really nice. It's the water I find very cleansing. Yeah. So just surfing more and trying to build a website, get this book done and then kind of reevaluate. I, it sounds like you're just going with the flow, like see, very much. see where it takes you. Very much. See, see what happens. Uh, can I read the, the quote from you about um, your dream for gaming addiction? Yeah. Maybe. Imagine a world where if you're a gamer who struggles with a video game addiction, you don't just survive without game, but games, but you thrive and you find a meaningful life. That's the world that you want to imagine. That's your dream. And your mission is to have a positive impact on at least the 10 million video game addicts uh, who are out there in the next 10 years. So that's your dream. I just want to make sure that if anyone out there is struggling, that they're able to get help and they're able to improve their lives and then not just survive without games, but really thrive. And if I can help them do that in any small way, that's what I'm trying to do. And that's why I'm here. That's why I wake up every day. And I just want everyone out there to know if you're struggling with this in any way, you're not alone. Help is available. Reach out, ask for help. That's what saved my life. And I believe it can save yours. And real life is worth fighting for. Love that. It's so beautifully put. And, uh, I have some people that I really want to have listened to you and your, and, and your message. I think they can really take something from your message and the fact that you've lived it, breathed it, suffered from it, come back from it, had a relapse, come back from that, and that you love the movie Superbad just makes you an all-around cool guy. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. 
Um, at the end of a podcast, we, we asked people uh, what they would do if they were going to take a road trip. Let's say you were to, to take a road trip from here to Toronto in Canada. Who would you take in the car with you if you could take three passengers from any time in history on a road trip? Oh, wow. From any time in history? Yeah. As soon as you said that, I had like three friends yes. instantly. It could be that. Yeah. Don't, they don't have to be famous people. They could be close friends. Yeah, I'd say um, my buddy Deepak, my girlfriend, and my mom. That'd be fun. Be a fun little road trip. My buddy Deepak and I, we, we just like to road trip and hike and take photos. And your last day on earth, if you knew you were living your last day on earth and you could design your last day, I have a feeling it would have something to do with some waves maybe somewhere, your favorite surfing spot yeah, with people I, you love. I think I'd wake up and go skydiving in the morning. Okay, you haven't done that yet? I've gone skydiving. Okay. I'd like to go again though. Okay, that'll wake Many you up. more times. Yeah. And it would involve surfing at sunset, probably here in California because it doesn't get much better than that at sunset have some fish tacos after that if i do those things i i'd be pretty happy all right well you're an amazing young man and um really appreciate you coming in and look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the future thank you phil yeah thanks so much for listening to the gaming the system podcast i hope you got value out of today's episode on gamequiz.com we have hundreds of youtube videos articles and other podcast episodes to help you get control over gaming we also have bespoke coaching programs where we work directly with you and your family to get gaming under control for good. For information on our coaching programs, email me directly, cam at gamequiz.com or go to gamequiz.com and click book a call on the top right corner and I'll share information with you then. Together, we will get your son back on track and we look forward to working directly with you.